2: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your
3: podcasts.
4: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. A financial literacy pilot program is underway at Georgia State University. It will serve residents in the Summer Hill neighborhood. We'll talk, why, we'll talk about why that is so important. Also, later in the program, it's been a year since the shooting death of Matthew Zadok Williams by a DeKalb County police officer. I'll speak with Williams' mother and two of his sisters as the investigation is ongoing. All those conversations coming up, but first this. The Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is extending a mandate that requires all passengers on commercial flights to wear masks. But as we hear from Jim Burris, the
0: nation's airlines
4: are pushing back.
0: In a letter to the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the director of the CDC, trade group Airlines for America urged officials to, quote, lean into science and research. The letter says it makes little sense to require masks inside an aircraft, but not outside in similar places like restaurants. The group, which represents Atlanta-based Delta, also points to enforcement, noting that airline crews have largely shouldered the burden often having to confront frustrated passengers. The renewed mandate stays in effect through May the 3rd. Jim Burris, WABE
4: News. In other news, Governor Brian Kemp has signed three new agriculture-related bills into law. As he emphasized in his remarks at a bill-signing event in Middle Georgia yesterday, farming is still the state's largest industry, as we hear from Molly Samuel. Kemp signed the bills at Dickey Farms, a popular stop for peach ice cream, peach preserves, and big boxes of peaches. It's owned by state representative Robert Dickey, chair of the House Agriculture Committee and sponsor of two of the bills the governor signed. One of those expands elementary school education about farming. The other protects farmers from nuisance lawsuits. This one was controversial, with critics saying it threatens private property rights. A third farm-related bill, the governor said, was one of his priorities this session. It better connects food banks directly with Georgia farmers. Molly Samuel, WABE News. Several national groups kicked off a million-dollar campaign in Atlanta and other large cities this week to celebrate Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's Supreme Court confirmation as we hear from Emily Wu Pearson.
5: Jackson is the first black woman Supreme Court justice in U.S. history, and three organizations, Building Back Together, Black Women's Leadership Collective, and She Will Rise, are highlighting her personal story and career success to young black audiences.
6: The historic bipartisan confirmation of Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson brings our great nation a step closer to its promise.
5: The commercials will be featured on black-owned TV stations and publications in Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Atlanta, three cities with large black populations in three swing states. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News.
4: And finally, the Atlanta Hawks are set to travel to Cleveland tomorrow because they will take on. They were trying to compete, so they need to take on the Cavaliers for that number eight seed in the playoffs. That's after putting an end to the Hornets season by beating Charlotte 132 to 103 last night. Now both teams went to the games with an equal record and having split their regular season games two and two. But the Hawks, well, they took an early lead and dominated for most of the game, which is what they do when Trey Young is doing his thing. Trey Young let the Hawks in scoring with 24 points and 10 rebounds. So keep it going, Hawks. This is Closer Look.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF.
4: And Closer Look continues here on WABE Amplifying Atlanta. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Some of you who took our Paycheck to Paycheck survey, which you still can do, it's online at WABE.org slash paycheck, indicated financial literacy programs would be helpful or beneficial towards establishing some type of financial stability. But it does take more than just maybe taking a class or a workshop. Well, Georgia State is in the midst of a financial literacy pilot program, and it's from the center it's from its Center for Studies on Africa and its diaspora, called it the Place and Race Program. It has a goal overall to improve and create sustainable generational economic outcomes. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Elizabeth J. West, Professor of English and the John B. and Elena Diaz version of. Almost distinguished chair in English letters at the university. She also serves as co director of academics for the center. Also, Odutin Gordon, a compliance financial business partner and grant manager at GSMA Foundation. We'll learn more about that organization in just a moment. And we welcome Sheena, a current participant in the program. Welcome to you all. Everybody can unmute. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yes. Hello. Thank you for having me. All Hi, right. Rose. Hey, before we take a deeper dive in the program, Professor West, I want to start with you, because I know for some listeners are saying, what is this Georgia State Center for Studies on Africa and its diaspora? What's it all about? It's fairly new.
3: Uh, it is, Rose. We are coming upon our second year. It was founded, um, uh, oddly enough, at um, uh, at the hallmark of uh, the COVID crisis, so it turned out to be, um, I, I, for lack of a better word, an ideal, because it was, I think, needed for that moment. Um, so the, the center uh, focuses on um, aspects of the African diaspora, and that's across um, academic, Uh, you know, as well as public-facing kinds of initiatives, uh, you know, and concerns. And that's what uh, leads us to um, the financial literacy program. Before I, I,
4: I bring in Mr. Gordon, how did the Place and Race program come about? Because this is all part of a bigger initiative, the financial literacy part, correct?
3: Yes, yes, it is. When we when we founded CSAT in 2020, one of our key visions was to develop programming and partnerships to make an impact in Atlanta communities. So one of the earliest goals uh, we established was to promote um, uh, promote and advance STEM education and readiness for uh, students in underserved Atlanta communities. And uh, it may seem an odd thing to jump from you know, STEM to financial literacy, but in terms of our own vision, we see it as a natural connection. Uh, because if, if, we want to, if we want to promote um, advancements for students, it's important that we connect that to progress and success for parents and adults. And, of course, one of the key challenges in underserved communities is mm-hmm. uh, is economic. Mm-hmm. And so financial literacy, you know, we, we see that as a beginning um, for, you know, for the larger uh, place and race uh, program.
4: Oduton Gordon, you have a background in community outreach initiatives. I imagine you feel the same way that the professor talked about and the importance of a financial literacy program and its benefit.
5: Most definitely. Uh, It's a great need. It's just something that's just not taught in the schools. And if you ask most people in the streets, they don't have a lot of general information about their 401k and investments on especially the minority communities in all the major cities of Atlanta.
4: Now let me ask you this because this is a, a pilot program and you all are offering this program to residents, of the nearby Summer Hill neighborhood. Why this community, Mr. Gordon?
5: Well, the grant was structured in a way to identify um, a special demographic that was underserved. Mm-hmm. And the grant was to focus on the parents of the marriage action cluster.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: I think Ms. West could talk more on why this particular location was selected. Professor?
3: In... In large part, it's because we had to identify, you know, when you're going to do a pilot, you, you have to kind of hone in very purposefully, um, uh, you know, on a on a, a contained group. And um, the Maynard Jackson um, high school cluster uh, was really... Um, Uh, you know, for, I think for all of us in the room, it was just an obvious place to start. Mm -hmm. Uh, It, you know, it sits in um, proximity to Georgia State University. Uh, Our College of Education, uh, in fact, we had collaborators, uh, our colleagues in uh, that college who helped us with the larger place and race uh, vision. And, and so they have, um, many of our colleagues there have been in this area, you know, working and partnering with the schools in the area. Uh, so it just, uh, it just seemed the most natural uh, beginning for us.
4: So what were the requirements other than being in that cluster, just parents of students there or just to be in that, that, that cluster, that APS cluster?
3: uh um parents and grandparents or uh, surrogate parents yes that's in that cluster um so this uh this initial uh pilot is the start to that and we hope to in the next phase you know kind of make our way uh into the community, reaching out um uh you know more and more extensively uh in the community.
4: And how many households are currently now on the program or how many participants are in the program right now?
3: We we enlisted fifty uh to start. That was our our target. Um and and we, you know, part of the pilot is Um, To kind of take a look at what the ideal size, you know, for each six week program session will will be. So uh, this first phase is to really see, um, you know, start with that ideal 50 Mm -hmm. to get a sense of whether 50 is just right or whether it would work, you know, in, in smaller numbers, because we really want it to be a personal experience for participants as well. Mr. Gordon, are these online
4: workshops and forums? How is this actually working?
5: Well, we did a hybrid approach. The majority of the participants were online, but we did offer, with consideration to COVID, um, we did offer about 15 slots available to participants to come on site at Georgia State. So
4: they're coming in, to, and, they're, and are they, Is it's almost like a classroom setting, obviously, so they have someone who's talking to them, and... and I, it's like a curriculum, in a sense, too?
5: It is, um, but it's, it's also like a curriculum, but also more like a workshop. Mm-hmm. So we had a variety of professionals come in from a variety of different fields, and we taught the basics. You know, we we first assessed um, what was the knowledge base of all the participants, what what did they want to learn, or what were the needs were, and then... The professionals came in and based on how they they responded to what we were teaching, we actually adjusted the curriculum in Mm -hmm. midstream throughout the six sessions to address the needs of the participants.
4: I want to bring Sheena into the conversation. Here's my question for you. Prior to participating in this financial literacy program, how would you assess that? Did you have a pretty good hold on managing your money or did you definitely need some type of financial literacy program
2: um I definitely needed some type of financial literacy program uh it was right on time (laughs) uh for me uh to be honest um being a single mother of four girls um and then trying to work trying to have my own business I need more of a better blueprint of how to do things and the ins and outs and that's really what I got when I went filled in a lot of blanks for me
4: you said it filled in a lot of blanks what areas were you th- would you say you struggled with in terms of um Go ahead. yes ma'am um
2: one of those things was credit um getting my credit back on track knowing how to do that um a lot of times now you know everybody's charging for those services and if you are already trying to figure out where, you know, how to get your money going and stuff like that. You need, you know, somebody like, you know, with this program, that's where that program came in for me. I don't have the money to pay for a financial literacy program. And so as soon as I heard about it, I jumped on it. I signed up. What
4: have you been learning?
2: Um um, and I like uh well as far as building my credit, um, you know, when you're trying to get things deleted off your credit how to get those things deleted off my credit. Um, and then I had one instance where I paid something, but I really didn't, uh, they didn't take it off of my credit. Right. Mm-hmm. Although they said they would. So during the program, I learned that I can have a pay to delete letter um, and have that done and sent and sent to me before I make that payment uh, so that they'll know that it can be removed. So that was uh, definitely helpful for me with me trying to send in my letters and stuff like that. So, that was good
4: for me. Let me ask you this. If you, and, and I always say this, and I, I think I should be honest, because my father would always say, you know, if you, if you listen to me, I will get you to where you need to be. Now, I know, goodness, <laughs> I needed some financial literacy, something when I was in my 20s, when I was yes, even in my 30s. Yes. So you do you tell folks, hey, look, this is something I recommend to you all. If you don't have it, you should get it.
2: Yes, from day one I've been doing it. I've been telling um, even my my daughters. I have a 23 year old. I have one that's going to be 18. And being that I didn't learn it, then you know I'm like trying to pass that information to them. Like this is what you do, you know, and stuff like that. And it's been helpful to them as well. Um, you know, being that they're growing older, so that they won't be not be out here making the same mistakes I did with my credit and stuff like
4: that. Well, if we just only listen to our parents, right, Mr. Gordon? <laughs> yes. when you hear? <laughs> when you hear Sheena? Someone who's in this program this is this is what it's all about right?
5: Most definitely it's um, we really wanted to see impact uh, We had you know when we were trying to create the curriculum you know there are lots of curriculums out there that just simply teach teach the information and just simply leave but we wanted to really make sure that in addition to just simply teaching the the curriculum and just giving a test towards the end, we had volunteers calling all the participants every week. So because everyone had like a different um, different focus. Some people it was credit, others it was the mortgage, others it was um, how to create a, a budget. So by doing that, we really want to make sure that we identified at least one or two main financial concerns that everyone had. In but- addition to, you know, giving them some goals to accomplish after the curriculum, mm-hmm. but um, when we first started, we did set out to at least resolve one or two um, financial issues that, that all the participants were having.
4: Given that, and we've done so much of this in our Paycheck to Paycheck series, where we're focusing on the fact that so many households in this nation are considered unbank or underbank. Are you all addressing the importance of, because there, there are barriers for folks to even get a checking account. Do y'all have so, resources? You have the curriculum, but do you have resources to help some of these households as well.
5: Right. So we first started off by showing how to create a budget, and we presented a variety of different ways to create a budget. But then after we had the budget session, we had about two professionals come in to give the participants the, the resources to like actually... So the budget that we discussed was the 50-30 um, budget where... Ideally, 50% goes towards essential spending, 30% goes to personal, and 20% goes to savings. Now, this budget is not achievable for a lot of people. Absolutely, yeah. So we then um, presented, like, so a person, um, but I like to call her a super super, super couponer presenter. She gave a presentation on how to spend less money. And then we had one of the volunteers, Magma Creative Price. She came in to give them a presentation on ways you can make more money. So every single thing that we taught, we, we showed the participants that it, it is actually possible. So we give them the tools to make more money, spend less money. In addition, if saving 20% is not possible at first, um, we talked about you know, um, creating like a roadmap, you know, starts mm-hmm. starting small the importance of the 401k and the impact of you starting to invest a little bit now, how much of an impact is going to have when you're ready to retire much later.
4: Professor West, uh, just a moment at following this segment, we're going to talk about gas prices and, and inflation and all that. So this liter- financial literacy program is right on time. I have a question from a listener who wants to know if you all would envision a future where you would work with one of the local guaranteed income programs as well. Or did we just give we, y'all an idea?
3: Um, I think we'd be be open to that. Um um uh, we it, we have a website, we have contact information. Uh as long as they fund
4: that, it, is that now that's the other question too. The listener needs to know that you gotta get funding for it, right?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, and 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 this is why it's important to talk about this first stage of the larger program. Mm-hmm. You know, this this is um you know, this is part of a lar- larger vision and we are, you know, especially um appreciative of American Family Insurance actually for, you know, for stepping out and supporting us to to pilot this. Um, They consider this, you know, they have their um, um, $100 million plus initiative uh, commitment to uh, uh, improving quality of life for communities. And so they are, um, you know, putting resources out here for this, for the very kind of work that we're doing here.
4: You heard what Sheena had to say, but what other type of assessments or how do you gauge or even track you know, that the financial literacy program is is meeting its intended mission here.
5: So right now, um, the curriculum is still ongoing. And towards the end, we will do an assessment assessment survey based to kind of. Get an understanding of um, how much they have learned, but also we're going to give all the participants a list of five things to do um, before uh, they complete the program and. First, have a 401k or a retirement account or be investing. Second, have a path towards building an emergency fund. Mm
4: -hmm.
5: Third, have addressed an additional cost saving measure. Fourth, at least create a budget or be engaged and spend tracking mechanisms. For example, we highly recommend they use the Mint app. For example, and lastly, fifth, um, start to run their credit report on a regular basis. So, out of those five things, we ask them to pick three out mm-hmm. of those things.
4: Now, and also because you know we have to address this too, you can have all these metrics, and and Sheena can have these five, maybe all five, maybe three, and some folks can have three. But also, too, you you know, you, we have to acknowledge that income inequality is a major <laughs> aspect in this, too. As someone wrote to us for our Paycheck to Paycheck series and said, you know, look, Rose, it is hard to save money when you are in debt. And it's hard to save money when your income is I'm a low wage income is what they said. So those are the things we need to address. And we hopefully we. I think we do a good job of addressing that here on this program, but Sheena, I'll ask you, those five, you don't have to tell us which three, but are you able, you think, to meet some of those assessments that they've I'll- given you on?
2: Yes, definitely. Um, you know, uh, they gave, like I said, they gave a good blueprint of how to get started, um, how to look at your paycheck, how to break it down. Um, we were able to print off our bank statements and sort of look at how we've been spending our money and stuff like that, what it's been going to. So that 50-30-20 rule has been really helpful um, and, you know, help me see my money, where it's going and where I can apply other things. Um, even with savings, um, we learned that sometimes it's better to have the money coming out before you actually get your money, you know, so you don't see that money and so have it going to a separate savings account and that has helped me. I did start that Um and so I don't see that money. It just go over there and um other than that, I keep going. That way I have something, like they say, some kind of savings if emergency happens. we having four girls. You never know what's going to happen. You never know. So, <laughs> yes, and then, you know, my daughter's about to graduate prom, so you know, also is the reason why I was able to take this program because she goes to the or Cluster, so, you know, so it brought everything together for us in a lot of ways.
4: Sheena, I wanna give you the last word on this. Where do you hope to be financially in maybe let's say two years?
2: In two years, I really hope that my business has been gro- my business is growing. Um I'm able to have that home for my girls have a home for them and so that's what and they gave me hope on that because I was like Lord you know I, you know they it make it so hard when it comes to getting a home you know and make it think make it think it is impossible for mm-hmm. you but they you know gave me you know good you know um feedback on that and how to do FHA and different options that you can do um even if you know you're not where you think you should be so it helped out a lot
4: Hey, y'all need to help me get home, Professor and Mr. Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth J. West, professor of English at Georgia State University and co-director of the Center for Studies on Africa and its Diaspora. Odutin Gordon, a compliance financial business partner and grant manager at GSMA Foundation. Sheena, a current participant in the financial literacy program. We'll have links to on our website, to y'all's website for more information. And just real quickly, Professor, will you all
3: be able to ex- extend this to other parts of the city someday? That's that's, that's what we're working on, uh, Rose. That's why I'm I'm talking up our sponsor now because I, <laughs> I I, I want to I want that good feeling to uh, continue <laughs> with them.
4: As the kids say, go get that money.
3: <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
4: Thank y'all so much.
5: Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
4: And closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. In just a moment, I'll be speaking with family members of Matthew Zadok Williams. Now I'll speak with Williams' mother and two of his sisters as his investigation is ongoing. I'll give you a little backstory here. It's been a year since the shooting death of women since the shooting death of Williams by DeKalb County police officer. Now, according to records from DeCab County Officers were responding to a, quote, suspicious person call, and according to the incident report, later updated to a person armed call, close quote. Indications are Williams was experiencing a mental health episode, as his family will tell you in just a moment. DeKalb County police maintain Williams lunged at officers with a knife, resulting in shots fired at Williams, who later died. A programming note for our listeners. We will broadcast a portion of the audio from the body cam footage of the officers. We will give notification Prior to the audio, the investigation into William's death now lies with the DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston's office. This, after the Georgia Bureau investigation, concluded its investigation and then handed it off to the DA. In a statement to Closer Look, a spokesperson wrote, "Quote: The investigation is ongoing, and a charging determination has not yet been made." Close quote. There's a lot to unpack here. Joining me now is Chris Ann Lewis, Matthew Williams' mother his sister Hannah and his sister four. Thank you all for taking the time. I appreciate it.
7: Thank you so much you. for having us, Rose. Yes, thank thank you.
4: you. I want to begin by giving our listeners an update before we revisit what happened tragically last year. I want to begin by asking if the district attorney's office, Sherry Boston's office, has been in communication with you all regarding where the investigation is now. Any, any communication from her office?
7: So we've met with Sherry Boston's office twice, Um, More recently, we have been in contact with her office regarding scheduling. Um, There was supposed to be a meeting scheduled in January. That did not happen. February, that did not happen. March, that did not happen. And here we are in April. When we initially met with her, she told us it would take six months from the time she received the GBI file to release a decision. And we're now at the nine-month mark, and no decision has been released.
4: And this is Hannah who's speaking. Did they give you any indication in terms of Why you couldn't get the meeting scheduled? Was there something holding it up or just scheduling? No indication. After the GBI conducted its investigation, you were told that it could take an additional six months if charges would be filed, or just six months to determine what would happen next. That's what you all were told? Just six months to make a charging determination. And this is six months after?
7: From the date she received the GBI file. She received it in July. So we're now at the nine-month
4: mark. Ms. Lewis, I want to turn to you for a second. Matthew was your only son. Yes. Out of, out of a whole lot of girls.
6: Yeah, yeah. I loved him to pieces. My husband and I, we had six children together. Um, our first child was a girl, so we wanted to have one of each. So we made a decision that we were were gonna have a son, and we we were blessed to have five daughters, and finally, we had our Matthew Zadok Williams. His name, Zadok, it was determined years before he was even conceived. Mm -hmm. His uncles and his father came up with that name. And the ironic thing is, the name Zadok, it means justice and righteousness.
4: What's the origin of that
6: name? It's Hebrew. Mm-hmm. His name Matthew means gift from God. So when you say Zadok, you are saying justice. Sephora and Hannah, did y'all? Did you, Matthew
4: was the only boy, so I know I, I know what that's like because I we I mean I have a big family too. So but. Did, did, did y'all treat him nice? Did y'all tease him? Did, oh, y'all, did yeah. y'all make him do all the chores when he was supposed <laughs> no, to be young? No, he
1: didn't have to lift the fingers. Matthew, <laughs> Zadok was cherished in our household and he's still cherished to this day. And it's not just because he was the only boy and then he was the youngest, but it was just because of his nature. My brother had a heart of gold and he's always been like that since a baby. He's always been charming, very sweet and very loving to people. So... I got whatever he wanted <laughs> of course he did
4: <laughs> let me ask you this Miss um, Lewis when was the last time you spoke with Matthew in April of last year
6: I had spoke to him on April 10th and then on April 11th my son called me every day every morning I, he would call and we would talk sometimes throughout the day He was just everything to me. We were very, very close. And he would call because he would ask me, what's going on with your garden? What you're doing? Just cheering me up, making me laugh. And also, I had taught him how to day trade. Mm -hmm. So we would discuss the option market, what his next play is. And so all day long, we're back and forth, and he would tease me. Because I'm a Microsoft, IBM old trader. He's a Bitcoin, the new generation. And so we, it was just a wonderful relationship. So on the 11th, he didn't call me that morning. And that's not, that was just, I knew something was wrong, so I called his sister and said, go by and check on your brother because the markets have been closed. He I can't get hold of him, so go check on your brother. He was living by himself. He lived independently and, he had, he, and in his own home, which he owned outright. He owned his home. Had you been to his home? Um, This is in the middle. This is in the pandemic Mm -hmm. that's going on when we are just now getting vaccinated. And so you're staying in your pod. So you hadn't physically seen him in a while? I hadn't seen him. My My mother, who's 95 years old at the time, was living with me. So I had to be very careful that I didn't bring that virus in that house. So... I, I would only see, we would talk on our family chat line and that was an all day, to this day, our family chat lines are all day ongoing conversation. And we also did a lot of uh, video type mm-hmm. talking to one another. And this is how we commun- communicated during the pandemic.
4: So April 11th was the last time you had a
6: conversation April with April 11th, but I know for sure, the last thing I said to him is I love you. Because I never end a conversation with any of my children without saying, I love you. Hannah and
4: Zipporah, when's the last time you all had a conversation with your brother?
6: It probably had been for me.
1: I know I was getting so busy and caught up with work. Like, we had a really good text relationship. Um, I would probably say it probably had been a month. And I always think back to that because I got so busy from work. But ironically, literally around like that Saturday before it happened, I was talking to my daughter, and we were supposed to go and see him. Then Sunday, I picked up the phone to call him. Couldn't reach him on the phone. I was like, okay, you know, I'll go see him on Monday after I get my vaccination. And that never happened. So I always think back to that, you know, to that moment.
7: Hannah? I saw my brother the day before he was murdered.
1: So I you saw him on, on April? I saw my brother on April,
7: April the 11th. Um, I had one of my sisters had COVID. And she lived five minutes away from my brother, and so I was over there, you know, bringing her some things that she needed. And I said, "Well, let me since I'm here, let me go ahead and see Zadok." So I knocked on the door. He answered. Um, we had conversation on the porch, and I'm like, "Hey, you're okay, you know, normal things." I don't remember everything we talked about because I didn't know I was supposed to remember, right? You don't know when the last time you're going to see someone. Mm-hmm. He gave me a list of things he wanted me to get from the grocery store. I got those things, brought them back to him. He helped me get him out of the car. He hugged me, um, and I looked in my rearview mirror. He waited for me to drive off. I looked in my rearview mirror, and I saw him walking back into his condo. It was the last time I saw my brother alive. The next time I saw my brother, he was in a funeral home in a body bag, looking perfect. Like, he, he didn't die from sickness. He didn't die from an illness. He died because he was murdered.
4: What can you all share about Matthew's mental health status?
7: So, Zadok is what we called him. For the past couple of years, he became so he didn't really want to leave his house. The only thing that we know is that he had been robbed at gunpoint at a convenience store near his home. So we thought maybe he had PTSD, but we couldn't figure out why he wouldn't leave his house the pandemic hit, and then everybody was in the house. So it wasn't such a rush to get him out the house or to figure out what was going on because we were all locked inside. That's pretty much all that we knew because when we spoke to him, he was just his normal, brilliant, smart, charismatic self. Mm -hmm. But we all thought that it was odd that he would not leave the house, and we were working through that as a family.
4: When you say you were working through that as a family, can you share what, what, what does that mean? Did you have counselors Sephora or Hana.
1: We would talk amongst each other. And if you knew my brother, like, he was very loving and he was the only boy. But you just, you couldn't make Zotto do anything, you know. So we had to be very careful what, what, how we handled it. Um, we would have conversations and discussions to try to figure out ways to get him out the house. Like, what's the reason for him being in the house? But like my sister said, you know, during the pandemic, it kind of put a, a hold on that because, you know, it wasn't wise for anyone to be out the house at that time.
4: Did you all think that he might be experiencing a severe or some type of actual mental health disorder?
7: I I believed that something was going on. I just couldn't tell what it was.
4: Did right? you talk to him about seeking help? I know it's a pandemic. Well, so
7: I will tell you this. Um, I'm an attorney by trade, so I ask questions. And my brother... From the from the time that you know he could speak, he did not like me asking him a lot of questions. So um, that was just our relationship. He didn't want to be in- interrogated. So I I didn't have a relationship with him where I just sat and asked him questions. He was an independent person. So I did have my way of trying to figure out and assess what was going on, but we just couldn't get a grasp on it. Um, what we did know is there were three re- three way- reasons why he left the house. Basically, mm-hmm. um, one was he either went to the mailbox to pick up his mail. Two, take his trash out and three work on his plumbing um in the back of his home um and on the day that this happened the neighbors that we spoke to saw him with a bucket and a knife and we believe he was working on his plumbing
4: the condition of the house how would you describe it through your view
7: um i believe his house was in great condition because he owned it outright you know he owned his house outright and his house was in the condition that he wanted it to be in um if you look at that condominium association and you compare it to the other condos, it was in comparable condition. Um, the officers that responded to him that day, we do believe there was classism and bias because we do believe that he was judged based on the condition of his property in the condo association as a whole.
4: Because there was some, some boarded up
1: portions of the house, I believe? There was nothing boarded up in front oh, of the house. In front, but, but around the... Well, it depends on, I mean, that's a condo association sometimes. Some of them are vacant, some of them aren't. So the ones that are vacant, a lot of investors actually own out there, and they will board them up to prevent people from going in there squatting sometimes. But... like my sister said, those are cedar sidings that I know because I, I helped him renovate the place when he bought it. All we did was spray, and we didn't take anything down. So after ten years, you know, there's some going to be some deterioration with raining and, and you know just regular wear wear and tear on the condo. How long did he own it? How old he, old he, old? he bought that place back in two thousand and nine. Yeah, in two thousand and nine, I used to live out there myself. The floor plans are great. You know, I bought mine first, and then showed him the other one. We were right down the street from each other. And so just the way, you know, they were older and, you know, just the way the association is set up and how who's responsible for what, some things didn't get maintained. But, yes, he had leaves on his porch. I have leaves on my porch now as well, you know. Miss
4: Lewis, I want to give you an opportunity. Did you talk to your son about anything that he was experiencing Did you ask him if there was something wrong?
6: With my son, you have to be very careful because you don't want him to think you're – On my part, that I think I'm worrying about him because he never wanted me to worry about him. And when I tried to pry, he would say, Mom, I'm a man. How do you think that makes me feel to think my mother is worrying about him? But I was, I always had, I always knew it was not normal for Zadok to not come out. And because of the limited resources we have in Georgia as far as mental health, I just couldn't even figure out, begin to figure out. How do you get a recluse person who will not come out the house help? How do you do that?
7: Especially when they're independent. And the standard for a ten thirteen is if they're a danger to themselves or others. My brother was independent. He owned his home. He made his own income. That is not a situation that anybody can take control over. When there's an independent adult living with a mental illness.
4: And to your knowledge, you, he had never displayed any type no. of. Never. What would be considered, and this is. It's never even been in a fight. Okay. I wanna play a clip. This is from Officer Williams' body camera footage. We did, just note disclosure, we asked you all what, we didn't wanna trigger anything, but, and we have not edited anything in between. We've just mm-hmm. edited a portion. This is, we believe, when the officers are approaching your son's home. Which you, you want me to force it? I can. Okay. Uh,
2: please We coming in, come open the door. We coming in, come open the door.
5: Boss man, please come out for us.
2: We gonna force it
1: come to the door.
5: Please come out for us, boss man. What's what's the problem? How can I help you? I'm Sergeant Imperial Cap County Police Department. Huh?
2: Yeah,
5: I know. But honestly, now that we know he's all right.
2: That's the thing, you don't know if he's dead. If,
5: if he's talking. I mean, you can get hey, him. Sir. Be hey, sir, we're just trying to make sure you OK. Are you OK? If you want us to leave, you got to let us know something. Now we
4: should note that this is it's a lot of body. Care. It's a lot of a lot of footage. There's over three hours of this. We be, and you all have viewed some of this. At what point through your lens do you think the officers should have left?
7: We have identified four violations that the officers committed that day. We read DeKalb County's police's standard operating procedure. The first violation is when you encounter a mentally ill person, there are certain policies that those officers were supposed to follow. Officer Perry, who fired four shots into my brother's home at close range, admitted that at the time of the incident, he knew my brother was mentally ill, and so did the other officers.
4: I want to back up for a moment because there had been a call. Your your brother had a, a previous... It wasn't anything that was violent, but officers or DeKalb County Police had visited your brother's home before. Is that correct?
7: Okay, so thank you for asking that. So on March the 16th, we have discovered through a reporter, actually, that my brother called 911 and said that he thought someone was stalking him. Um, He said he asked for an ambulance, and he asked for, you know, the police to come to his home. He made two 911 calls that we're aware of on that day. We did not know at the time, but we have since found out about that. We believe that the officer who responded on April 12th is the same officer who responded on March 16th, but we have been unable to confirm that because DeKalb County has not responded to our open records request, requesting the CAD reports for the March 16th call. Officer Morgan can be heard on the body cam footage admitting that he had a conversation with my brother a few weeks prior through the window and that he believed my brother was squatting So he knew two things when he approached my brother that day. Number one, that he was mentally ill, and number two, that he owned the property, yet he believed the word of the young white lady who approached him and said that she knew for sure my brother didn't live
4: there. And that was the person who reports indicate called because according to the initial report, which we have here, which reads, upon their arrival, officers encountered a black male who was irate and armed with a knife, The suspect refused. Officers orders to drop the knife and attempted to assault the officers. The officers discharged their service weapon, and the suspect was later found deceased inside of a vacant location by SWAT.
7: Okay, so that is not the complete story. Unfortunately, I have watched the body cam footage over 100 times. Mm -hmm. I'm his big sister. Nobody's going to watch it and analyze it. My sister, Zippor, has also watched it over 100 times. What we have seen is when they first approached my brother, he was standing on his front porch with his back turned, trying to get into his front door because he had locked himself out. He was not outside irate. That is not the truth. The body cam footage shows the officer asked him to leave his property because he believed what the white woman had just told him, which is that my brother didn't live there and that he was a trespasser. This is the same officer that we believe was there on March 16th.
4: Mm-hmm. Also on body, on, on body camera footage, DeKalb County Police Chief, Mertha Ramos, who arrives on the scene a little bit later, she has an exchange with one of the officers. This is again from Officer Williams' body camera footage.
1: Uh, so She saw everything?
5: Yeah, she saw, she saw, uh, well, I don't know, did, she, did he hit, come at her with a knife? He came at and went, one of those two with a I'm not sure which one. Uh, us,
6: did you like
5: he it? Yeah, he's, he's absolutely met you, yeah. Definitely. I had a, a loan, well,
4: and if listeners couldn't make that out, Chief Ramos is asking the officer if she if he felt Matthew yes, so. was mentally ill and, and he says yes.
7: That's he a said conversation No, actually he said definitely. Definitely. Okay. That's a better than yes. So he knew at the time of the incident when he approached my brother that he was conversing with a man who was in the middle of a mental health crisis, yet he didn't treat him as such. He treated him as less than human. He had resources available to him, including DeKalb's co-responder crisis unit that he could have called out there and dealt with my brother once he retreated in his home. But instead, he made the decision to kick the door open, shoot him for no reason at all, and leave him to die. Rendering no medical aid.
4: In a recent conversation with DeKalb County CEO, Michael Thurman, I asked him about the investigation. Have you been notified of any developments or updates as Williams' family continues to wait for answers? What do you know?
2: Well, I've not been notified. I shouldn't be. Uh, This is totally within the purview of our district attorney. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the integrity and the experience and understanding of a DA Boston, and we'll wait uh, for she and our office to make the decision. Uh, but we just have to do more to try to prevent situations when people who may be uh, having mental health episodes come in contact with our law enforcement officials and present themselves as a
7: potential danger, and unfortunately, result in loss of life.
4: Have y'all had a conversation at all with so, CEO Thurman.
7: Yes, we met with CEO Thurman. We went over the four policy violations as those officers committed and asked him to relieve those officers of duty or at least put them on administrative leave. And I want to respond to what he just said in um, your clip, which is that, you know, he doesn't know anything. and He's not supposed to know anything. There are two investigations that we understand are going on at the same time. We have the DA investigating, deciding whether charges are going to be brought. And then we have the DeKalb County Police Department Internal Affairs doing their own investigation of the actions of the officers that day. So he at least knows about that internal affairs investigation. At least he should, because he is the head of DeKalb County.
4: You told me you're you're an attorney. Yes. You know about process probably Yes. probably more than anybody in this room. Is there a timeline for you in terms of this process and will your family seek to take it further in terms of legal action or ask the Department of Justice to intervene?
7: We are going based on what we were told and at this point we are expecting the DA to release a charging decision. It is hurtful to my family every day when no decision has been reached yet. We cannot even begin to reach the next level of healing until we know what accountability looks like in DeKalb County. And it is also hurtful that CEO Mike Thurman, as the head of DeKalb County, has refused to relieve these officers from duty.
4: You think he should do it and not the chief?
7: CEO Mike Thurman appointed Chief Mertha Ramos. He is responsible for the police department. He is responsible
4: for her actions. As an attorney, we just talked about process, so can you understand the process of Whatever that process is before you fire or terminate officers. I'll take it a little
7: further. As an attorney and a business owner, if I am in charge of someone else and they're not doing the right thing, then it's my responsibility to make sure that they do.
4: Even if they have not, in a court of law, been proven to have done done something wrong.
7: Again, there's two separate investigations. Mm -hmm. You have the internal affairs investigation within the Cab County Police Department, which is separate from the DA's investigation. And that internal affairs investigation should have revealed all the policy violations that occurred that day.
4: So at least you think they should be on some type of suspension or... Absolutely. They should be
7: on administrative leave. And if you want to wait to decide the status of their employment until after the DA releases a decision, then that that's your prerogative, but the fact that we know that they're still on the streets and they violated four policies that resulted in the murder of a 35-year-old black man who was a homeowner and a taxpayer in DeKalb County, the only son to a mother of six children, absolutely they should be on administrative leave.
4: And we should note that the officer who, what appears, fired the shot was a, a, a fellow black man. Which means nothing. Okay, but, you, if but you, The reason why I said that, Hanukkah, I want to be fair, is that you mentioned race, and I think our listeners should know. The, Absolutely. The, okay?
7: Yeah, these were black officers who responded that day. And in our communications with, as a family, after analyzing the, the body cam footage, we are not taking it the approach that they were anti-black that day. We're taking the approach that they showed bias and classism. Because when they, your, to your question earlier, when you asked me about the condition of his property, that's an interesting question because we believe that they noted the condition of his property, the zip code 30035, mm-hmm. majority black community in South Decab, and we believe they treated him less than human and showed bias and, and systemic
1: classism that day. Yes.
4: Have you also had any conversation with the neighbors in, in, in Matthews? Before?
1: Yeah, so when we found out on the, was it the 13th? You know, I went. I I mean, the GBI wasn't giving us much, and I wanted to know what happened to my brother because I know he wasn't violent. I've never seen him do anything violent, so I just couldn't receive what they were saying. So we went out. I went out, and I knocked on doors, and I tried to talk to people. I encountered one lady, and she was saying that she did see my brother, but he just had a bucket with some gloves. And immediately my mind went through, he's working on the plumbing in his crawl space. She didn't say anything about him wielding a knife. She didn't say anything about him going crazy or anything, like, the narrative that Ramos tried to frame, it was not there. Also, his neighbor, who he's known from years, when he found out he was there the day that um, that happened, and he's like... He had to go somewhere, but he was stating that, you know, only if he stayed just a little bit longer because, you know, he could have told them, hey, he's not homeless. He spoke to my brother all the time, Mm -hmm. and the last conversation he had with my brother's, my brother noticed that there was a leak that may be going into his house, and he wanted to give him money for it. He told him ahead of time. So it showed that my brother was honest, and he was really just shocked that that even happened to my brother.
4: Miss Lewis, we are almost out of time. Every day that you all don't have an answer or have any communication?
6: Well, it sends a message that leadership of the police, leadership in DeKalb County, has a problem with accountability. Because, number one, the mental health policy, it was not followed. Number two, when he was safely barricaded in his home, he had retreated behind in his home safely with the door closed and locked, Why did they they notify SWAT? That's policy. Number three, why did they shoot him for no reason when was no threat to anyone? And number four, why did he die from a non-fatal wound to his shoulder? Mm -hmm. Why, when EMS, who was on the scene, why were they told he's the only one hurt? Why is my son dead?
4: Chris and Lewis. Anna Williams, Zippora Williams, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having us, Rose. I really appreciate it. And again, we reached out to the Cab County District Attorney's Office, Sherry Boston, and we're told this ongoing investigation and a charging determination has not been made. Thank you.
7: Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
4: That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Raisel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, you can always send me your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the
4: host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh
0: Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need.